This is an ABC podcast. What are the impacts of the negative representation of First Nations people in the media? Hi, Paul Barclay here on This Big Ideas, the importance of nurturing an Indigenous media to change portrayals of First Nations people, especially youth, from the archives of the ABC Boyer Lecture Series. And to our 2022 series, delivered by Indigenous community leader, lawyer and academic, Gugu Yumidia man, Noel Pearson. In the fourth Boyer Lecture, he tackles the critical importance of education to lift First Nations children out of disadvantage. Here is Noel Pearson. Something changed forever in Chris Drage around the time he turned 13. In 2018, I read a story in The Australian about the 16-year-old Aboriginal boy who tragically drowned in the Swan River with his best friend following a police chase. It was like so many stories of young black lives cut short that you read in the news regularly. The story affected me and I followed the subsequent coronial inquiry. The journalist Paige Taylor wrote, as a kid, he was cheery and cheeky, growing into a champion athlete and a skillful junior footballer who could hold his own against much older boys and dreamt of following his Indigenous heroes into the AFL. Yet by the time he was a teenager, Chris had dropped out of high school, never to return, and stopped playing sport, becoming distant from his mother, who worried incessantly about her beloved boy. His pastimes instead involved smoking weed as he began to hang out with a back of wayward Aboriginal boys who, like him, never had a father figure in their lives and seemed to lack direction. Chris's mother, Winnie Haywood, believed the biggest influence on her son's errant behaviour was the absence of a father figure or a male mentor. His mother noticed her son had learning difficulties and had been diagnosed with dyslexia and ADHD. The school provided special tuition, but classes continued to confound him and reading was almost impossible. His mother told Taylor that he taught himself to read from Facebook. Chris was enrolled in a highly regarded football program, but his attendance rates dropped below 50%. Everything fell apart for Chris in high school, his mother said. That was the start of all the trouble. It was like he was trying to find himself, but he was lost. I feel like I tried to teach him the right ways, but it just blew up in my face. This loving and dedicated mother did everything to give her children a better life. Now her son was lost 
to a tragic drowning. I believe Chris would have survived his absent father. I am convinced he would have prevailed over his ADHD and dyslexia. He had the unstinting love of his single mother, and that could have been enough. My belief is Chris's school education failed him. His primary education failed to teach him to read. The inability to read is, in my view, the universal explanation of why bright, irrepressible primary schoolers turn into sullen, disengaged high schoolers who drop out. I see this play out in depressing succession, involving hundreds and thousands of lives. And yet what is known as the science of reading, the evidence showing what is necessary and effective in teaching reading to young children, has been known for at least 50 years. If that is so, why do large proportions of Australian classrooms still fail to graduate students without functional literacy, year in and year out? Despite the students attending primary school for seven years, why is the teaching of reading in Australia still in denial of the vast accumulation of evidence in favour of the science of reading, even though the facts of failure and underachievement are plain in every classroom and every school. Do any teachers know of students from their classrooms who left school without being able to read? Of course they do. Scores and scores. Do any school leaders know of students from their schools who left without being able to read? Of course, hundreds and hundreds. Do any school system administrators know of students from their systems who left without being able to read? Of course, thousands and thousands. The statistics show this failure year after year. And yet, why haven't we done anything to stop this failure? Especially when we have known what we need to do to fix reading achievement for many long decades now. Why don't we do what the scientific evidence says we need to do? Let's just pause to consider this absurdity. The most significant national initiatives in education undertaken since Education Minister Julia Gillard introduced standardised testing through NAPLAN were the two Gonski inquiries of 2011 and 2018. In 2010, Gillard commissioned businessman David Gonski to devise a fairer funding model for schools. The inquiry resulted in a large increase in funding. A second inquiry undertaken by the Turnbull government charged Gonski with the task of working out what needed to be done with the increased investment in order to produce better outcomes from Australian schools. 
both inquiries avoided the question of pedagogy. They avoided the question of teaching and specifically how to teach reading. This was the most important question for the state of Australian schools and Gonski strictly avoided it. There is, to my mind, no doubt this failure to confront the how of teaching and not just the who, the verb and not just the noun, is the reason why the Gonski funding reforms have failed to yield improved outcomes from Australian schools. The issue of effective instruction was in front of Gonski, but he avoided dealing with it because he didn't want to take a stand in relation to the highly contested issue of pedagogy. More than a decade after the Howard government minister, Brendan Nelson, commissioned the late Professor Ken Rowe's National Reading Inquiry in 2005, which recommended the explicit teaching of foundational reading skills, including phonics, the same as similar inquiries in the United States and Britain had done, the teaching of reading contrary to these recommendations was still the prevailing norm in Australian schools. The flawed methods of teaching reading still predominate in Australian classrooms almost two decades after the National Reading Inquiry. Tens of thousands of children are going wanting in terms of literacy as a result every year. And because reading is fundamental to all other learning, this failure is destroying the education of these children and their lives. For some years now, I have played with the metaphor of swimming. We know the technology and methods of swimming. We know how to teach children the mechanics of swimming so that they do not drown at our beaches rivers, lakes, and swimming pools. If we decided to make the teaching of swimming compulsory, we would be able to ensure that every Australian child learned to swim. The same goes for reading. We know the technology and methods of reading. There is now a vast science of reading. We know how to teach children the mechanics of reading so that they do not drown in their school education and their future lives. And yet, we allow thousands of young Australians to drown in illiteracy every year. The science of reading tells us that reading and writing are new technologies invented by humans. They are only a few thousand years old. Many societies, like Aboriginal Australia, only encountered these technologies in the past 200 years. They are not part of human evolution. 
the ability to read and write is not something biologically natural in the way speaking is. The acquisition of language is part of our biological evolution. This is what the evolutionary psychologist David Geary calls biologically primary knowledge, like the ability to recognize faces and other crucial learning the ability to acquire language is innate and natural. This is the first mistake. The assumption that reading and writing is the same as language and the task of school education is to somehow draw that out of the students rather than teaching them the skills and methods of what is a new technology. Based on more than 40 years of rigorous research, the science of reading tells us that children need explicit instruction in five essential components of reading. Phonemic awareness, phonics, fluency, vocabulary, and comprehension. In the first year of school, when they are five years old, Let's go through these five elements. Phonemic awareness is the ability to make all of the sounds of the language we are learning. For students who have English as their mother tongue, this phonemic awareness is natural because such native learners have acquired it as part of their acquisition of English. Young Mandarin speakers are similarly aware of the phonemes of their mother tongue simply because it is part of their native language which they learned to speak from their earliest childhood. Young Guguyimidrit speakers from my home are also phonemically aware in their native tongue. The problem is schools routinely overlook the fact that Mandarin and Gugu-Yimidr students who are learning English are not phonemically aware of the English language. There are phonemes in their languages that are not present in English, and there are phonemes in English that are unknown in their languages. Schools need to explicitly teach students from non-English speaking backgrounds to be phonemically aware of English. Otherwise, they will be at a starting disadvantage compared to native English speakers. One of my ancestral languages is Gugu Yimidr. If you were to learn my language, I would need to explicitly teach you a number of phonemes that are sounds of the Gugu Yimidr alphabet unfamiliar to English speakers. One of them is the phoneme N, written NH. It is formed by putting your tongue at the back of your top teeth. The groper fish is called Ninini. Another phoneme common to Australian Aboriginal languages is N, spelt NG. English speakers know this phoneme at the end of words like 
bring and sing, but would have to explicitly learn it because numerous Guguyimidir words start with ng, such as ngali, you and I, and ngandan, us. They would also need to learn the trilled R, such as in wara, bad, and kangaroo, kangaroo. R is common to Australian languages, but unknown to English. So I would need to explicitly teach you these phonemes. Only if you grew up with Kukuyimithir as your mother tongue would these phonemes be known and pronounceable by you without explicit instruction. A knowledgeable Gugu-Yimdir teacher would need to explicitly teach you. The second skill is phonics. Learning the correspondence between letters and sounds in the language you are learning. This is crucial to reading. It connects the technology of symbols with the sounds of language. In other words, the symbols indicate what the mouth and throat should do in terms of the sounds it should make when expressing the language of words. Phonics instruction is about learning the individual letter-sound relationships and then blending them to pronounce the full word. So we learn that the symbol C is K and the symbol A is A and the symbol T is T. Sound it out. K, A, T. Say it fast. Cat. Can you believe that in one sense, reading is that simple? D, O, G. Sound it out. D, O, G. Say it fast. Dog. Of course, English is not completely consistent in its phonics. The alphabetic code of English is a product of its mongrel heritage. So the alternative phonemes for C and A in cat is a source of confusion. English has 26 letters, but 44 phonemes. However, reading programs such as direct instruction have invented practices that takes the vagaries of English into account in the teaching of letter-sound relationships. The next element is fluency, and its role is obvious. The more fluent the reader becomes, the more likely she is to enjoy reading, as the cognitive load of decoding text is reduced making reading more efficient. Many school leavers who can read but are not fluent do not go on to be lifelong readers of books. Then we come to vocabulary, which is about increasing word power in the language of learning and its comprehension. This is a lifelong journey involving explicit teaching, extensive reading 
and habitual consultation of dictionaries. It is about extending one's knowledge and understanding of subjects. New vocabulary equals new understanding. Often, new vocabulary acquisition is tentative and takes a long time. One can read new vocabulary readily, but one may be uncertain or unconfident about deploying it in speech or writing. A lot of reading in formative years involves vocabulary that is not fully mastered, and a lot of reading of highly technical papers is similarly difficult for mature readers, unfamiliar with knowledge of technical fields. Vocabulary and meaning is a lifelong endeavour. Of these five elements, it is the explicit teaching of phonics that has been bitterly resisted by the progressive education theories that have dominated Australian classrooms for the past 40 years. Notwithstanding the recommendations of the National Reading Inquiry 17 years ago, notwithstanding the science of reading and its enormous evidence base, there is still a resolute resistance and obscurantism in relation to the teaching of letter-sound relationships in English. One reason appears to be the belief that children learn without it. This is partly true. Reading theorist Professor Kevin Weldahl once explained that in any given classroom, 25% will learn to read no matter what, 50% will learn to read if they are taught competently via whatever approach, and 25% will never read without explicit instruction. I call this the Weldahl rule, and I see it play out time and time again in schools and in their data. 25% of every cohort struggling to read because they have not received explicit instruction. The bottom 25% are usually comprised of students with learning difficulties, poor socioeconomic backgrounds, non-English speaking backgrounds, parents who are not educated, and homes without books. It is this bottom 25% that fall out of our schooling systems every year either graduating without functional literacy or dropping out sometime in high school. Indigenous Australian children comprise a large proportion of this failure. Chris was part of this cohort. His primary school failed to teach him to read because it failed to explicitly teach him phonics and the other basic skills of foundational reading. His brief high school experience failed to remediate the failings of his primary school. I read his coronial report 
and it clearly failed to diagnose the true reason why his family lost their beautiful boy in such a tragedy. The coroner and those conducting the inquest had no idea what they were witnessing. This is the pipeline from the failure to learn because of the failure to teach, to truancy and disengagement, to street life and petty crime, to juvenile detention and adult incarceration. Hiding in plain sight behind all of the factors involved in teenage disengagement and offending is prior primary school illiteracy. Australian public discourse focuses on the symptoms of this failure and is completely blind to its cause. A second reason why Australian classrooms stubbornly refuse to teach children the constituent skills of reading is the belief that phonics will destroy the love of reading and literature. But this objection makes no sense. Children love stories. Humans love stories. Stories make us human. We hear and tell stories every day from our earliest childhood. Oral stories are then complemented by stories in books. Long before we read, we come to love stories from books read to us at home and by our teachers at school. The next phase is for us to be able to read the stories we love in books. We just need to learn the mechanics of reading so we can get into books. If we don't master the mechanics, how can we love reading and the books that reading makes available to us? This objection to phonics, based on the argument that it destroys the love of reading and books, is a nonsense. It is illogical. How can any child love books if they cannot read? Thousands of children are expected to work out how to read and write through a process of immersion and indirect guidance rather than teacher-led instruction that is focused on the constituent skills. At the heart of the school education injustice crisis is this confusion about how children learn and how teachers should teach. There are two camps. The first camp is the student-centred learning camp or the social constructivists, the inquiry and discovery learning camp. They have held the commanding heights in school education over the last half century. Most Australian schools follow this camp. The second camp is the explicit and direct instruction or teacher-led instruction camp. These two camps have been at loggerheads for decades. Teacher education faculties across the Western world 
are dominated by those who follow the inquiry learning camp. In Australia, a recent survey showed that of the 450 teacher education degrees, only three of them offered courses teaching the theories and practices of the science of reading. Teacher-led instruction is virtually absent from teacher education in Australia. School education can do one of two things for children and their future lives. First, it can reproduce what advantage or disadvantage the children have as a result of being born into the circumstances of their family. This is the reproduction model. Second, it can transform the future trajectory of children's lives by giving them a pathway out of disadvantage that enables them to rise out of the circumstances of their families. This is the transformational model of school education. Most Australian schools are based on reproduction. Few, if any, are transformative. Since we gained citizenship in 1967, we needed transformational schools, but we only have schools that reproduce our disadvantage for the most part. The schools that serve the very far left-hand side of the bell curve of Australian schools are in truth preparatory for future underemployment and unemployment. And the obscenely high rates of juvenile justice and adult incarceration that mark the bottom million in particular. This is because the students that attend them end up underliterate and undernumerate, and by the end of primary schooling are disengaging from secondary schooling where they mark time or leave. The wastage of talent and potential is staggering. Lives just written off because we cannot give the children the transformative education they need and deserve. I want to dedicate this lecture to Chris's memory, the beautiful boy whose life was cut short so unnecessarily and so painfully for his mother and family. I want us to think about Chris as not just another Indigenous boy whose chances in this country were cut off too soon for reasons that seem so usual to readers of newspapers. Disengagement, truancy and petty crime leading to detention, incarceration and early death. Chris's story is about Australia's failure through its Western Australian school system and through the school he attended to give him the education he needed for a new life trajectory, which his mother had done her damnedest best to support him in. 
to break the cycle of disadvantage and hopelessness and to keep the optimism of his childhood alive through his teenage years so that he could take a rightful place in his own country. Chris drowned in the waters of the Swan River, but it was in fact the fatal currents of illiteracy that had dragged him under and left his family grieving his short life. Thank you. Noel Pearson's fourth lecture in the 2022 Boyer Lecture Series. In his final lecture, he'll look at the question of identity. Now to the archives from a significant time in Australian history. Not long after the final report of the Royal Commission into Black Deaths in Custody was tabled, the High Court recognised Indigenous occupation of the land. To reflect these historic events, the ABC invited prominent First Nations people to voice their concerns and visions for the future. In this 1993 Boyer Lecture, Dot West, a Noongar woman from Western Australia's southwest, considers the negative media portrayal of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and offers solutions. At the time, she was chair of the National Indigenous Media Association. And a warning, there is mention of people who have died. Here is screenwriter and consultant Dot West. She begins with a poem she's written about what it's like listening to white radio. We sat in the riverbed, me mates and I. We heard what you said about our people and oh, what lies. You spread your word and images too around the world for all to view. But one thing you forgot was the truth of the matter, the forgotten lot in a land of chatter. You told of our fighting, our drunken roaming ways, all the white sightings which only your eyes can portray. You didn't know us or even understand when you took a guess and reported about the original inhabitants of this land. So back in that riverbed we plotted and planned for our voice to be heard in this racist land. We're here now with our own sound waves to tell of how we became your slaves. The stories are rich and cultures strong. We will teach of the right and the wrong. So what's your voice, young white one? We now have a choice to correct your tongue. Non-Indigenous Australians have held the power of the media for over 200 years, giving us various images of Australia, including a negative portrayal of its Indigenous population. We are now in a position to change the thinking of non-Aboriginal people and enlighten them as to who we are and what we do, and to take a look at the history of Australia from an Aboriginal point of view. Looking at the history of Australia is certainly a learning process for non-Aboriginal people who have been educated from a white perspective. Just consider this point alone. When did you become aware that Aboriginal children were being taken away from their families and being raised in missions and institutions? And more importantly, when did you find out how Aboriginal people felt about this genocidal treatment? I bet you didn't learn about it in your school books. We learnt about this along with the massacres, poisonings, rapes, the stealing of our country and many more sad and shameful crimes. We learnt it from our own people. Our parents, grandparents, great-grandparents and even our great-great-grandparents grew up knowing this history. We had to. We lived it. 
we are the victims of Australia's white history. Many of us had the opportunity to go to school and we did. But when school finished for the day, we went home for an education about family, about land, about spirituality, about attitude, about respect. School was only part of our education. So on our Indigenous media outlets, on our radio stations, in our newspapers, in our books, on stage and through television, we tell our history, a history that white Australia cannot divorce itself from. But it's not all gloom and doom. We also tell of our rich and diverse culture, the relationship between the land and its people, of how the land and our people are one. We also tell of our achievements in white society, our doctors, university graduates, medical and legal services, our writers, musicians and so on. But most importantly, we tell of how we have survived with our principles and culture intact. The media has significant power to determine what issues are important and set the public agenda. It has enormous power to shape the meaning of these issues and as a result it can strongly influence people's ideas and values, including their ideas about Aboriginality. At its worst, it can help institutionalise racism. When white media portray us as savages, unemployed, drunks, criminals and just simply poor blacks, they are not only oppressing us as a people, they are reassuring themselves about their own race. Every time we're put down as savage or primitive or hopeless, white people are reassured that they are civilised, modern and successful. Aboriginal people are tired of being used as a sounding board for white society to bounce off ideas about its own identity. We're also tired of being the subject of so much hypocritical scrutiny. There have been many times when I've seen non-Aboriginal people sitting in their glass houses getting sloshed to the eyeballs on alcohol and pointing their fingers and saying something like, look at those black bludgers, they can't handle their grog. This statement is racism at its worst and is often initiated and reflected by white media. The media treads carefully when it comes to white Australia's drinking problem, but there's no hesitation about stories to do with Aboriginal people and alcohol. We don't see the film crews go into white people's houses or the hotels, filming the drunken scenes and doing stories on the alcohol problems of whites. It's not done because the media would be telling white Australians that they're drunks. You might feel I'm getting into generalisation here, but that's exactly what the mainstream media does when it talks about the Aboriginal drinking problem. These media stereotypes do more than hurt the feelings and damage the aspirations of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. They are helping to build racist attitudes which I believe can cost lives. Look at the death in Perth of Louis Johnson. In January 1992, on his 19th birthday, Louis was deliberately driven over by white youths in a car. One of his killers later admitted this horrendous deed was committed because Louis was black. But the threat to Louis's life was compounded when the ambulance officers decided to take this fatally injured boy home rather than to hospital. They thought he was intoxicated and wanted to go home. He died a few hours later. Racist attitudes towards Aboriginal people were being reinforced and circulated with great intensity in the West Australian media in the lead up to the murder. 
From early 1990, the media presented juvenile delinquency and youth crime as having reached the proportions of a major social crisis. Most of the crimes, large or small, were directly attributed to young Aboriginal people, such that any youth-related crime in WA is now almost automatically assumed to involve Aboriginal people. The sensationalised treatment of juvenile crime, including car chases and the tragic deaths they caused, triggered public outcry, with tens of thousands of people marching to Parliament House, demanding a judicial and police crackdown. The irresponsible reporting that led to this rally included comments like, good riddance to bad rubbish, that's three less car thieves, I think they're dead and I think that's good, by one radio personality on the death of three Aboriginal youths. It was startling that the murder of the Aboriginal youth, Louis Johnson, by white youths at the time, did not rate the same sensational reporting or evoke the same outcry. I'm not denying that many young Aboriginal people are in crisis. How could it be otherwise, given their life circumstances? But I am questioning the grossly inflated news values given to youth offences. What good does this do, especially considering the difficulties in generating the same degree of popular emotion and community spirit to take action to resolve the social injustices suffered by Indigenous people. But not all media treatment of Aboriginal affairs is negative and biased, and we must recognise the good and conscientious work carried out by many journalists. There are areas in which Indigenous Australians have made gains and in which non-Indigenous journalists have been eager to help. There are some examples that come to mind. The movie Blackfellas tells the story of a young Aboriginal man just out of prison trying to go straight, highlighting the many influences in his way. The music industry's embrace of the talent of Yothi Yindi is another example, and the national simulcast of Stomping Ground, 1992, the Kimberley Aboriginal Arts and Cultural Festival, certainly demonstrated our musical talents. Just as mainstream media can change attitudes, so can Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander media. As an example, I'll tell you the story of a Kimberley group which commenced its first broadcast in 1987 on the ABC. The Aboriginal community wanted a way to help maintain their own languages and portray and inform about their own culture and way of life. They also wanted to counteract the bad publicity their people were receiving in the local paper and the consequent low self-esteem the local Aboriginal people felt when they dealt with the white community. Interestingly enough, when this group first started broadcasting, it was the only media apart from the ABC providing a radio service to this region. So the audience was not only the Aboriginal people, but also the non-Aboriginal community, and some attitudes certainly changed during this time. You see, this group didn't just turn white people's thinking about, it also turned the thinking of the Aboriginal community. It instilled pride and built self-esteem amongst the young and old. This is just one example in the very short time Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people have been involved in the media industry. We now have six Aboriginal radio stations licensed, about another six groups working towards a licence, about 90 remote communities licensed to deliver both radio and television services, various newspapers, a television station, many performers in all fields of the arts, authors, playwrights, a publishing house and the list goes on. 
No longer can we be portrayed in white media from only a white perspective. We're telling our own stories. The federal government already funds two national media services, the ABC and SBS. From our point of view, that's two networks largely for non-Indigenous Australians. Even with goodwill, there's no way they could cater to Australia's Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander community. We're extremely diverse in our culture with many different languages spoken. Think of the Kimberley region of WA, roughly the size of Victoria and Tasmania combined. If you travel through the Kimberley with its large Aboriginal population, it's just like travelling through Europe with its changing cultures and languages. The ABC has realised it can't cater to all of our people. In 1981, after consultation, the corporation began to allow different Aboriginal media groups to have access to the ABC's radio airwaves. Australians were experimenting with radio as far back as 1905, and the first station, 2SB in Sydney, began broadcasting in 1923. But it wasn't until 1976 that Melbourne station 3CR broadcast the country's first Aboriginal radio program. One month later, 2XX in Canberra transmitted Australia's second Aboriginal radio show. So it took 53 years for our voice to be heard in our own programs, and this came about initially through the public and community radio stations. If you consider the short amount of time we've been involved and the lack of clear policy and direction from government to cater to our growing needs, you will realise we have achieved against all odds and are still doing so. Unfortunately, TV presents a different story. Less than 1% of Australia's television programs are produced by Indigenous people. Many Indigenous media workers have developed great broadcasting and production skills with very little or no formal training at all. But it's essential to provide training opportunities for our people in this field of work. Not only tertiary education, but also practical training in all areas of the industry, from management and journalism to technical skills. There still needs to be a more concentrated effort made to increase the numbers and ensure that all positions within our own organisations are occupied by Indigenous people. The media industry has opened up greater employment and training opportunities for skilling our people. The ABC currently employs 73 and SBS 16 Indigenous Australians. But you can count on one hand the number employed in the commercial electronic media and the numbers for the print media are even lower. This might improve shortly as the Federal Government, through the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody, is providing money for these specific industries to train and employ more Indigenous people. But on the other hand, the Indigenous media industry is still struggling for adequate funding. And some organisations have been operating on the smell of an oily rag. Even when money has been spent in our communities, it has often been a case of one step forward and two steps back. In 1988, the year of the Bicentennial, the Department for Aboriginal Affairs gave some 85 remote Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities a facility called BRAX, Broadcasting for Remote Aboriginal Communities Scheme. The package included a satellite dish and decoder, along with some basic equipment which allowed the community to interrupt the radio or television signal and broadcast their own programs within a five kilometre radius. The idea was to get electronic media into remote areas, but to avoid swamping the local culture. 
brilliant idea, fantastic plan, but what was forgotten were three very important factors for the system's success. Consultation, training and ongoing funding. In many of the 85 communities who received BRACs, there was no consultation by the Department of Aboriginal Affairs about whether they wanted the equipment or not. It was just delivered and installed. Many of these communities say that they were given only a half-hour course in how to operate the equipment. They were shown how to receive the station of their choice, how to turn the machinery off and on, and that really was it until about a year later when the bureaucrats got it together enough to realise community members needed to be taught how to interrupt the incoming signal and to make and present their own programs. In most cases, it wasn't until two years after the installation of BRACs that people received this training. In the meantime, the communities had become accustomed to the daily soapies and the general infiltration of Western culture. Setting up our media groups around the country has been hard work, especially in the absence of progressive policy for Indigenous media. But that hasn't been our only problem. We've had to convince our own people and the major funding bodies that Indigenous media is a priority and not just a luxury. While issues like health and education are clearly important priorities, we've argued that Indigenous media can help to tackle these issues by raising people's awareness and morale. It was not until 1991, nearly 70 years after the birth of Australian radio, that the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Commission, along with the Department for Transport and Communication, wrote a discussion paper about Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander broadcasting. It became a long and bureaucratic process, but eventually, in April 1993, after much consultation, the commissioners of ATSIC endorsed a new policy paper for Indigenous media in Australia. To a certain extent, the new policy paper is reflective of what is happening within the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander media and what will be developed in the future. However, there are still some areas of concern. The major one is the use of the word broadcasting, when in actual fact we, in the industry, also include our newspaper outlets. But the policy paper doesn't recognise this form of media. There are other areas of concern, but it is apparent that ATSIC plans to use the newly formed National Indigenous Media Association as a body to consult with and receive advice from. We, as the Indigenous media industry, now have a forum for negotiations. I spoke earlier of building a national Indigenous media network to stand side by side with the ABC and SBS. In its new policy paper, ATSIC recognises this as an important long-term goal. If this goal is implemented, it will mean that we will be competing for broadcasting dollars rather than Aboriginal health and education funds. Until that recommendation is implemented, media organisations who receive ATSIC grants face a conflict of interest. Our communities expect us to report truthfully and fairly, but in some instances it becomes extremely difficult for this to happen in relation to ATSIC, our funding body. If there is an adverse story about a regional council or councillor, we're potentially compromised since these same people decide on our organisation's funding. Like many of my fellow workers, I have hopes for the future in relation to Indigenous media in Australia. I don't think my vision is very different from that of other people. I would like Australia to recognise there is an Indigenous media sector which does exist and has existed and developed for many years. 
Non-Indigenous Australians could benefit enormously from a strong Indigenous media service. You would not only get a better informed view about our culture, but also you'd be able to see pictures of yourselves from another point of view. Whites have made plenty of documentaries about our people. What about Aboriginal people making a series of documentaries about white suburbia? What about Aboriginal comedy and soapies? I'm sure you as white Australians are sick of seeing and hearing all the political and contentious issues surrounding us, but there's a lot more to life and we can share this with you. Everyone in Australia could benefit from such a media service which would give a more truthful and positive view about ourselves as Indigenous Australians. Perhaps that would make it harder for another racist murder such as Louis Johnson's to happen again. White Australians are now becoming aware that there is a black Australia. More importantly, they are starting to appreciate us as a people and feeling proud of this country's Indigenous culture. This alone is an important achievement. But we do need to reflect this culture more within our media by portraying Indigenous life in all its diversity. With this, a greater understanding and awareness will evolve and a healthier Australia will emerge. I will end with these words from a poem by Jack Davis. Let these two worlds combine yours and mine. The door between us is not locked, just ajar. Dot West, with her 1993 Boyer Lecture, Voices from the Land. More than 15 years later, among her many roles, Dot West was appointed as inaugural vice-chair of NITV, National Indigenous Television. Dot West is an award-winning screenwriter and also works as a consultant. I'm Paul Barclay. Thanks for listening. Bye for now. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.